So my family from the Midwest, but when I was five, uh, my father had joined Caterpillar and we moved to Europe, which influenced my entire life. So I spent first and second grade in Rome and then third, fourth, fifth, sixth, uh, part of seventh in Geneva. And then we moved back to the Midwest. And that those five, seven years, you know, taught me to play soccer, uh, which I was recruited for for college, lifelong skier, spoke French. My wife is French. We have a house in France. I'm involved with a lot of international organizations, so it was a great experience. What, where in the Midwest exactly? So born in Milwaukee, lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, lived in Peoria, uh, and then most of my uh, high school, though, eighth grade through high school was uh, about an hour outside of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And do you have fond memories of Europe and growing up and kind of going to school there? Great, great memories. I had a great experience. Um, so really enjoyed it, had fun, did a lot of sports, traveled throughout Europe, you know, was a, a very sheltered family that really opened up by going to Europe. And, uh, I now spend about four months a year in Europe and my kids have all spent time there. They have French passports. So it's a, become a very international family. That's awesome. 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 I think, uh, the last, I think when we were going to record this, uh, before you were, I think you were traveling to Europe. So I, I imagine you're back in the States now. Yep, I'm in uh, New York right now, but I was in France last week, Ibiza two weeks ago, and Scotland uh, four weeks ago. Amazing. Awesome. Um, thinking back, you know, as a kid, it sounds like you had kind of different hobbies and interests and things like that. Did you did you have like a vision of what you wanted, you know, your adult life to look like in terms of what you imagined your career would be? So, you know, when I was filling out my SAT form in uh, high school, you had to put down your two main interests. And my interests were both business and sort of politics. And here, 40 years later, those are still two of my biggest interests. So I, I was interested in business. I thought I was going to be more running large companies. That was sort of the framework. And my father worked for very large companies. So I sort of thought of that as the default. Uh, but that changed over time. And I've always been interested in public policy, uh, in politics. Thought I would run for office at some point, but later on decided I didn't want to. But I'm still involved uh, in New York. Uh, the city city level, the state level. Even I was in D.C. last night on uh, you know on, on the national level as well. How did how did you come to be interested in these two things? You know, besides seeing your where your father worked and maybe his experience, did you have any other insight as a kid into you know business and entrepreneurship and all these other politics things like that? You know, I'm not sure. Both my parents were interested in politics, so I've always been intellectually interested in public policy and politics. And on the business side. I thought of myself as more of a leader, not as an entrepreneur. So I always ended up running, like I ran my high school student council. I was the third, fourth, and fifth grade class you know, president. Uh, in college, I ran a, a bunch of political and business organizations. So I just sort of naturally gravitated towards leadership and other people felt comfortable with me doing that. And it was only really in my early 30s when the internet started that I started seeing that there was an industry that intrigued me where it was all by definition going to be startups because it didn't exist. And I just thought, well, that's the way to go. And now for 25 years, I've only done startups. What led you to either believe or to know that you were a good leader? You know, part of it was other people early on were choosing me, you know, just in high school before people were like, Oh, you should be the, the head of student council, you should run this or be the class president. And so I was like, sure, I'm happy to do that. I felt, I felt confident. I felt uh, okay doing it. I liked public speaking. So it felt pretty comfortable for me. 
Uh, it was less a drive to go do that than it just felt natural. Um, and I felt that I felt that my my whole life. And and did you at the time? I guess you're in high school when we're talking about the student council stuff. You know, did you have any skills that you wanted to learn and build beyond just leadership? You know, a lot of it was what I love about the training you get from doing things in high school and college is that, you know, if you run a, a student organization, absolutely no one needs to be there. And so the only way they're going to be there is because they're having fun, they're enjoying it, they believe in the mission, whatever you think your mission is. So it, it actually trains you in the way you need to be as a leader, not the sort of asshole, like, do what I say, because otherwise people are like, I'm out of here. I don't need this. Um, so I think those, those trainings are very, very valuable. Would you say you had a, a pretty strong desire and drive to, to be successful in life from a young age? And, and if you did, yeah. where did that come from? Sometimes it comes from family dynamics, you know, maybe not having as much uh, money when you're a kid and you want to you know, be very wealthy, or maybe it comes from wanting to make a you know, serious impact in a particular industry or something. Where, where did it come from for you? you know, my parents would say that I was sort of competitive and driven from an incredibly early age. That whether it was I did a lot of sports, just really wanted to win, wanted to get better, wanted to improve. Was very focused at an early age on how do I improve my technique and get better. Uh, when I was, you know, when I I applied to Yale, I decided I wanted to go to Yale when I was a freshman. I had never met anyone who ever had gone to Yale, Harvard, or Princeton. Uh, I just decided that I thought that was the best school undergraduate in the country, and so that's where I wanted to go. And so was on a path to go do that. So yeah, I definitely, but you know, I was in a very comfortable household. We were not wealthy, but we were the same as everyone else. Didn't didn't really feel like we were missing anything. Uh, great dynamics with my parents and my uh, siblings. So no, like I've had no pain, trauma. I've had a psychologically incredibly uninteresting uh, <laughs> life. Um, you know, just a you know happy, great experience. Kevin, I'm curious, did you or were you hard on yourself? Like, did you ever set such high expectations for yourself and feel like you were putting this unnecessary pressure on you to achieve? You know, not really. I don't have a lot of memories of that ever. I felt more almost mechanical, like, okay, uh, I didn't play golf, but if I was playing golf and there was a number, uh, let's say you shoot a 90 and you'd hope you were hoping for 88, but 90, now you got to think about how do I get down to 88? which I didn't get today, work on that. You get on 88, you hope it was an 86, and you just keep going. And, you know, I think everyone needs to learn that you're never going to accomplish every single thing in your life. I mean, you're not going to be whatever uh, Jeff Bezos professionally. You're going to do well, whatever that well is, and you're going to have to adapt to that and feel good about where you are. Um, so it's the journey that's important. And in all sports, you know, you can have an incredible time, even though your team didn't do that well. But you love playing soccer. You love the camaraderie. You loved the, the competitive nature. And you had fun. I always make sure I have fun. Yeah. You talk about going to Yale. You know, presumably you were a good student um, and did well in academics. What were some of the subjects that really interested you? And what did you end up studying at Yale? So I ended up going into senior year uh, in a position to either major in art history or economics. And I decided to choose economics because 
I liked art history a lot, but I wasn't going to be doing that professionally. I was very good with numbers. And so I felt like I was going to go down a business path and that economics made more sense. Although I actually enjoyed the art history a little bit more um, and enjoyed probably political science more. But I, at the time, this was in the mid eighties. I, I thought I was going to, I wanted to go on wall street. I spent my first four years having a very good experience on wall street, got sent to London, came back, worked on leverage buyouts, uh, M and a, uh, and in, actually, in, a lot of people don't like it. I, I enjoyed it a lot and then went off to business school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And business school was overseas, um, right? Yeah. You ended up going to- so I went to INSEAD, which is outside of Paris, which is probably the best international business school. Um, also one that people just love, love, love the experience. And it's also yeah. one year. And all those things were attractive to me. Uh, and I probably one of the best years of my life. Yeah. Kevin, well, obviously what you- Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I, you obviously grew up in Europe as a young kid, but what drew you so much to Paris and France and wanting to go back? You know, I, um, so I always have liked uh, spending time there. Uh, I was sent over to London because in 1987, the city of London was opening up, was deregulated. It was a very exciting place to be in the financial system in the world. And then I love the fact that, you know, I could jump on a plane and in one hour be in any one of you know, 30 interesting places, uh, you know, more interesting and more diverse than from New York. I can fly to Boston or DC, but frankly, they're not as interesting as flying to Brussels right. or Dublin or Copenhagen. So I, I love that experience. Um, thought I wanted to, I still had this international interest. Uh, so I thought inside would be a great fit. And, and yeah. it was. Um, you talk about that one year at NCAD being, a very, you know, good year or impactful year in your life. Um, what were like the biggest takeaways from going to business school that you can share? So it was, for me, it wasn't so much about learning specific business schools, business skills, because, you know, you don't have to go to business school. It's not like law school. Uh, it was more that I made uh, incredible friendships. I met my wife there, uh, you know, last two years, like three years ago. 6 a.m. on the playa at Burning Man. I'm there with two uh, classmates from INSEAD. We're all 56 years old at the time. And we run into a fourth. And so these are people I've been in touch with for a long, long, long time and shared a lot of interest with. Uh, so amazing, uh, international, fascinating friendships. Yeah. And so what ends up happening after um, you get your MBA? Is that, I think I saw, so you, was that when you went and worked at DoubleClick? And, and how did you even come across? No, there were two two stages before that. So I, I yeah. wanted to stay in Paris because my wife was going to work for her family company and an amazing job in Paris. So we decided to stay. I, I worked for Disney. Disney was opening Euro Disney at the time. And so it was a big, huge expansion, US company. I worked there wasn't that enjoyable. It was very big, very bureaucratic. I was working in finance and operations. I didn't enjoy it that much. And then I got a job back in the States to be the CFO and COO of a division of EW Scripps, which was a media company. And it was a 180-person division. Um, I had a lot more responsibility at a team of 50 people, which was a very big team for me. I was 30 at the time. So I came back to that, had a, had a wonderful experience. And as part of that, um, read about the internet and started a website, the Dilbert website, because we own the rights to Dilbert, among other things. And that website in 95 became very successful. Uh, and we had advertising, we had e-commerce, 
And so I thought, you know, we should really leverage this. The, the internet's going to be one of the most fundamental things I see in my lifetime. So I went to the parent company and said, look, we should, we should invest more in this. You should give me money. I was thinking as a good, loyal, loyal corporate citizen, they thought about it and said, no, they didn't really buy into that. And so I thought, you know what? I'm so convinced of this idea. I'm going to go do it myself. And so I went out and I was going to start an internet company in the advertising space. I ran across DoubleClick, which had 12 people at the time. They're six months old. Met two guys who had a deep technical background who were very impressive. They said, why don't you come join us instead? So I joined as the CFO, then became the president and became the CEO. Uh, and we built that company. And four years later, we had 2,000 employees in 25 countries. So that's what I spent those four years doing from the age of 32 to 36. Crazy, crazy experience. Yeah. How did you even come across, you know, a six month old company like DoubleClick? I mean, was it just people, you know, like introducing you, you know, that kind of thing or, or was it by chance? So it's hard to remember, but in 1996, there were probably 150 people working in the internet in New York City. Yeah. And so if you, someone had a little, I'll call it a conference, uh, it, it fit in one room. So it didn't take very long to meet everyone working in the internet at that time. Uh, and because I had actually quite a successful site, I was uh, one of the people at the table there. Everyone wanted to work with us, sell our advertising, do e-commerce with us, do something. It was just a tiny, tiny, tiny uh, industry. Mm -hmm. And so it was not hard to meet everyone. But there were only two companies, the predecessor of 24-7 and DoubleClick. I met them both, and I decided to join DoubleClick and not start something on my own. Yeah. Kevin, was it enough of a success at that point that you could technically just retire and do whatever you wanted to do for the rest of your life, or you had to kind of keep going? No, at, at, you mean after, before DoubleClick, not at all. I mean, no, I was af really sorry, after DoubleClick. Oh, I definitely, yeah, after DoubleClick, I definitely could have, I could have retired, yeah. Uh, so then I was, I stayed there a total of nine years. Uh, we went public. At the peak, it was worth $13 billion, although we ultimately, the company got sold for $3 billion in 2008. Uh, and um, so I, even though I wasn't a founder, I definitely you know, made, made enough money, tens of millions of dollars, that I probably could have uh, stopped working. But I I'm, have no plans to stop working now. And it's a, a lot has happened since then. So I enjoy what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you're obviously now, you're, you're in your... I want to say early forties at that, at that point, early forties. Yeah. Yeah. 41. Yeah. At that point, 41 years old, you've got more money than you know what to do with. I assume in your account. Yeah. Um, what, what are you thinking in general? Oh, I'm, I, I started a company before we even completed the sale of double click. I had already started another company. What was that one? So, uh, at the time, uh, the, the founder, one of the two founders who was the CTO of double and I, decided to start a company called ShopWiki, which was a, a search engine for shopping. And we started with the third person from um, the most brilliant young engineer named Elliot Horowitz. And that company did okay for about two years. We sold it. Uh, and then we started, and we had another company at the time. Uh, and, but in 2008, we started three companies. We started Mongo, which is today worth $22 billion. Uh, We started uh, Business Insider which became a very successful media site with 300 million uniques. And we started Gilt, which became a very successful uh, e-commerce shopping site with $500 million in revenue. So yeah. we got pretty lucky. All three started that year. I was chairman of all three. Uh, Dwight, spent most of it, Dwight and Elliot spent almost all their time on Mongo. 
I split my time. And then after a year and a half, became stepped in as the CEO of Gilt. Uh, and, and the reason I did that was in year two, we did $175 million in revenue, which is a crazy number for a startup. I mean, no one's ever done that in New York. And so the internal systems weren't working well. The fast growth was straining the systems. And I actually felt like I was the right person to figure that out. And so I, I did that with CEO for a couple of years and brought in a CEO to replace me. And the next week started Zola, which is a wedding registry, uh, which does this year will do about 600 million uh, in, uh, in, in wedding presents. You know, yeah, I will are, say, I will... no, go ahead. Go for it, Pat. I was just gonna say these are these are all just like incredibly successful companies. I'm just curious, you know, maybe we can talk about your approach to starting these companies. I mean, it seems like there is some sort of systematic approach. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, how do you even begin to conceive these ideas and start building out the systems that you know you end up having all these you know home runs? Mm -hmm. I guess uh, you know what's kind of the approach. Yeah. So you know it's. The approach is not so unique. And, and by the way, I should say at the time, I was generally starting a, a company a year. I didn't have staff or things like that. Now I have a full company that does this, Alicorp. So I have 20 people on the business side. So we have many people in verticals that are thinking about this. And now we start eight companies a year. But the idea, you know, is no different than anyone else. You, you're always thinking of a product idea. You're trying to find a problem out there. You have to have a vision for something that's going to be different and better than what's out there. So Mongo is a fundamentally better database than the other choices at the time. You know, Business Insider, we forget. Uh, at the time, Business Week and the Wall Street Journal did not update their websites during the day. Hmm. That's even hard to imagine today. This is only in 2008. Because they didn't want you to not buy the newspaper the next morning. And they were still on the schedule, which they've been on for 100 years, of you write the stories at night, they appear in the morning, and that's just how life works. And so. You know, what we did was say we're going to have or update things all the time, frequent, you know, stories, people write multiple things per day, more opinionated, punchier, all the things that are almost standard in the Internet today, but were not as standard in 2008. So it just was a people forget now it was a very different product. And that's why, you know, the reason everyone turned us down for Business Insider is they said, uh, you don't have a media background. Nothing works in media. It's not going to work. Uh, everything you're doing is insane. And you're never, you're telling us you're never going to buy advertising. You've never seen an ad for Business Insider. And yet, just because it's good content, you're going to end up with 300 million uniques. That's insane. And that is exactly what happened. And but it's all about telling you this investors? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I joke sometimes that um, raising money for Business Insider or for Mongo was like my high school dating career. It was rejection, followed by rejection, followed by hostile rejection. Followed by, if you were the last person on earth, I still wouldn't invest in you. Mm. So, but uh, so so you 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 the idea comes comes about, and then yeah, you do you start like for example, let's take Business Insider as an example. Yeah. You know, how did you meet Henry Blodgett, yeah. who ends up being the CEO and and you the chairman? Yeah. Like, how did you like for yeah. each of these companies? Like, what was the process like for that? So at that point, I didn't use a search firm, but I just went out and I interviewed, I mean, no different than if you were hiring someone, a uh, CFO, what would you do? You'd say, well, I'm going to go find a bunch of candidates. I interviewed seven people. Henry's one of them. Uh, I, I vaguely knew Henry, not that well, but I'd met him once or twice. Um, and he was friends of friends. And so he was one of the seven people I met. And I said, I think you should do this. He loved the idea. And by the way, he's still the CEO today, 14 years later. 
We sold it yeah. seven years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and he's done an incredible job. He was he was an amazing pick. Yeah, but what you what do you look for when deciding who to partner with to be to run these companies and to build yeah. these companies? So in the beginning, what is most important is the person understands the product. Because for the first two years, you know you don't have a lot of revenues, so you don't need a CFO. Uh, it almost t- sometimes it takes you a year to even launch, so you know you don't even need sales. Whoever's creating the product, that's the most important thing. And so that CEO ideally has that background. So in in Mongo, it had to be Dwight and Elliot as engineers who are actually coding the product. At at uh, Business Insider, it's the editorial. And so Henry had a unique vision for editorial that was not like Wall Street Journal and everyone else. Um, and at Gilt, it was product. When you think of the internet product side, design, you know, the design and the merchandise for Gilt was essential. Uh, so I found people that, that could do that in all three cases. Kevin, early on, did you... Did you have expertise in any of those areas? I mean, whether it's Mongo or Gilt as zero. a fashion company or you know Business yeah. Insider, like so, yeah, you have zero experience. So, what gave you zero. the confidence that these could work? You know, it's you're thinking of the consumer. So, uh, did I was very confident as a as a person who reads business news all the time that there was a need for what I was providing. That, that you know something all of the things I talked about punchier better product, um, so that I knew on the database side I had to rely a little bit more on the judgment of Dwight and Elliot who are deeply technical. I knew that when I when I when I was at DoubleClick that Oracle was the most expensive software product we bought and one we didn't like and had, you had to hire all kinds of people to implement it and it was slow and not not as scalable as we wanted. Uh, it wasn't the product for today. So, uh, and, and guilt, this was that idea, by the way, I had seen in France, there was a very successful company doing that in France called Vent Privé and, and most people didn't know it. And so I knew that if we provided dresses at 50% off, you know, people were very happy to buy them and it didn't exist at the time in the United States. So I didn't know anything about fashion, but I knew other people did. And so we'd find that we'd find those people. So let's just take guilt as a case study, for example. So you as Kevin Ryan know that there's a similar company or same company or very similar company in France. Um, You're not a fashion guy. You've operated businesses and you have a belief that you think there's a need Mm -hmm. for something like this in the U S or North America. How do you find the right people with having, having what I just said, basically, how do you find the right person? How do you know they're the right person? So the first people I need, yeah. So then it's just hiring like any other job. So the first people I needed were really a CTO to build the website because you don't need any merchandise for five months. Uh, You need to have a website. So uh, I went out and just through my own network, found a guy I'd never met before, but I saw a resume um, who was amazing. So I had two deeply technical people to build the website in the beginning. Then I needed someone, two people, uh, Alexis and Alexander, who could get out there and had some fashion background. One had worked at Louis Vuitton, one had worked at eBay, who had e-commerce and fashion background, had relationships with brands, who could go out and try and pitch this and sell it. Uh, and then we, I hired, uh, you know, they found an amazing design person, UI design person, had worked in fashion. And we just ended up, we hired very, very good people. Um, and look, over time, it's, you know, it's no different than if the three of us were putting together a basketball team. You know, do the uniforms matter? 
Do the yeah. training techniques matter? No, no. We need five players who are really good. That's 95% of life. And everyone in basketball knows that. Right. And in a company, it's no different. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't. But I think I've had yeah. a pretty good track record of, of hiring good people. And and I've read that you you're a pretty active chairman, pretty hands on with the companies that you started. Um, but you, you know, even as chairman, I'm sure you have to kind of relinquish some of those duties to you know the operational duties to you know the CEO or the CEO or the you know the the C-suite team who's running the company. And do, so, do you think? You know, we've seen examples like the case of Steve Jobs with Apple, where he was kind mm-hmm. of the initial visionary founder guy, came in, did his thing, was ousted, and the company wasn't doing well until he came back because he was like the original visionary, like the person who came yeah. in as the CEO. How important do you think that is? Because it's almost like a different case with you. It's like you've sort of envisioned these, you know, these mm-hmm. companies put in the right people in the right places to, to build them out who maybe didn't have the initial vision, but saw yeah. the vision and shared the vision. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious what you think about that in terms of how important it is for the founder to be. It's, the it's, no, no. So uh, there's a myth in Silicon Valley that only this original founder has the vision. And that is just completely wrong. Uh, it makes for a good book. It's just not true. I mean, look, I, I, I spent time with Larry and Sergey when they had 50 people. There was not a vision for everything they're doing today. There just wasn't. What they wanted to do was just create a good search engine that was better than other search engines. And then they built over time, but it could have been someone else. You know, the, what was the vision for Business Insider in the beginning? It was a, a business news site online that, you know, updated all the time. Yeah, guess what? You just, you understood it. There's nothing more. And even you're on the site today, you're like, that's what it is. You know, guilt. What, what's the vision? I mean, you're on the site, you can understand it in like 10 seconds. It's yeah. the execution that matters. Uh, so I don't buy that there's only one person. I mean, if you started working in one of these companies in the first three weeks, you get it as much as anyone. Then it's learning from your customers and building the vision over time. Like, oh, like in the beginning, we were doing women's clothing, which was obvious. Then we're like men's clothing. Then someone said we could do travel. Dynamics are the same. I never thought of that, but like a good idea. Then we did kids. We did home. So you build that. You build that over time. So uh, no, there, there's a secret in being a good chairman, which is the CEO has to run the company. You are an advisor to the CEO, and if you think they're not not the right person, your job is to change them. But until that happens, you are there to make them successful. And so today, you know, I interviewed two potential CEOs this week. Uh, I, I assure them I'm not going to be running the company. I chair 15 companies. So now, so I'm definitely don't have time, you know, to do your job. I definitely don't want to do your job. It's an incredible pain in the ass if, you know, I have to do your job. Uh, and my first job will be just find someone else. You know, the problem, I think, in the Steve Jobs situation, when, when founders either get fired or moved to chairman and they didn't want to, and they don't have another job, they spend all their time trying to do your job. Mm-hmm. and second guessing and that's not productive so kevin it's interesting you know i feel like a lot of people want your job right <laughs> where they are the visionary they get to work with the you know operating team and frankly i'm one of those people <laughs> i mean you, you know, like not because of the wealth creation potential that's a part of it but more so i think that you know you do realize at one point of your life that you are a better, perhaps, visionary than an operator, yeah. and yeah. that's completely okay. Mm-hmm. And that there are, you know, ways to make money and in both of those areas. How, you obviously, when you started, you know, Ali, 
you ha- you were in a position of a, let's call it leverage where yeah. you had already created wealth. How does one call it? Let's use me, right, Pat, mm-hmm. whoever else that's in our positions. How does one do? I guess this path of serial entrepreneurship mm-hmm. as a visionary early on without having to necessarily be not the best operator. Yeah. And, and there's some elements about it that are hard in that situation, because here's what happens. If I, if I come to you and I have this idea and I basically I have a PowerPoint presentation, I've done a lot of work. It's a good idea. And I say to you, look, I think you should be you know, the CEO and you should have whatever 18% of the company and get a salary. You know, part of you is going to say, well, wait a second, I can just start my own company. If I'm going to be the CEO, I'll start my own company and do it. The reason I can convince you to do it often is because one, I'm putting in a million and a half dollars so the company's funded. And two, you're going to get paid a, a decent salary right away. Three, hopefully you believe you have to like the idea, but three, you have to believe that I'm going to add value. And so hopefully you're thinking, you know, Kevin raised 37 rounds of financing last year. Every single VC firm knows him. That's probably going to help me uh, when I raise money. He's going to add some value. Whereas I have some people come into me and they're like 27 and they're like, I want to be chairman of seven companies and do it. And they, they can't hire the CEO. The CEO is like, I don't need to work for you. You know, I'm not going to learn that much. I'm old. And so hopefully I've, you know, there's some things that I've done. I've taken companies public and that you're like, you know, I might learn some stuff here. He'll add some value. Has that but situation ever happened to you where a CEO says, I don't want to do it with you. I can just do this on my own. Actually, I've never had anyone um, take an idea because you know ideas can be taken. They don't you don't own them. I've never had that. Partly because if I'm already down the path of hiring someone, like I would, if you in the back of your mind you're thinking you're starting from scratch, I already have a funded company. Uh, if you don't take this job, probably in four weeks I will have a CEO. You're just competing with me now, uh, within a funded company. So, right. and it's not great to take someone's idea and go do that. So I've never had that problem. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously many of the companies that you've started have gone on to have successful exits, whether it's going public or being acquired. Uh, and you know, we often hear in Silicon Valley about, you know, exit strategies and if you should have one when you're starting the business, uh, do you typically have one when starting a business? Do you have kind of this long-term vision of what you imagine that business will kind of exit, uh, or like, I guess what the exit would look like or, not I, really. I don't even know that. I don't know the meaning of that word. Oh, no, no, I'm kidding. What I mean is yeah. that I know I never think about uh, exit strategy. Yeah. And the reason I don't is that uh, if this goes well, it's going to be five years before we're even open to exiting because we want to get to some scale. If I think if I'm starting it, because I think it may have a real potential you know, it doesn't have to be a, uh, the next Tesla, but it's going to get to $50 million in revenue. And that's going to take, you know, years. And any exit strategy we have today might be very different by then. You know, the dynamics of the industry will change. It'll get better, get worse. Our product may change over time. So I never, ever think about that. And I don't want to make bad decisions of thinking, oh, we need to position it so that, you know, General Motors will buy it. And then General Motors goes bankrupt. So that was, that was a bad strategy. You know, Look, business isn't that complicated, meaning we need to build a business that has a lot of revenue and eventually has a lot of profits. Now, that's hard to do, but that's all we're all trying to do. If we do that, we will have many options. 
we can go public. We can sell it. We can just dividend money back to us all day long. So I don't even need to worry about that. 95% of companies never get to $100 million in revenue and you know $10 million in profits. That's really hard. So Kevin, that's the only focus. Do you ever worry about how you will scale yourself? Meaning, you know, right now you're obviously a big value add to the CEOs and the teams that take on the ideas that you present them. I know you said you have a team about of, of 20, but a lot of times people are like, well, I want to work with Kevin. You know, if Kevin's not there, I don't want Pat to be my chairman. I don't want Posh yeah. to be my chairman. I want Kevin. You know, yeah. how, do you, how do you work around that? So that happens a little bit, but, <clears throat> you know, we're all replaceable and trainable. And so I'm not worried about that. I've, over the last couple of years, built up a very good team. So like in healthcare, uh, I have a managing partner of healthcare, uh, Brenton, who you know has an MD, MBA. And so in the healthcare companies, he knows a lot more than I do. He's a better person for those companies. And so he is the point person there. And people know that if he has a question on something he hasn't dealt with, he comes to me. But uh, it doesn't have to happen that often. I have another partner, Jeff DeFlavio, who uh, also has an MD, MBA, uh, who who's started groups, a very successful healthcare company. Uh, I have a guy named Marshall Porter who runs our sort of non-healthcare practice, who works for me at Gilt, you know, ran companies. These are very good people who are very credible, and uh, that's the way to scale. Yep. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with the team. Uh, but that's, you know, look, it, it's always a challenge when you're, you started the company, people would love to have you. Right. You know, it's interesting. Last week we spoke to uh, Nubar Afayan, who is the founder of Flagship Pioneering and Moderna. Sure. And, you know, so listeners will know by the time your episode comes out on the show, mm -hmm. uh, he talks about this concept of parallel entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. which sounds a lot like, you know, what you have done. Yeah. Um, why do you think these entrepreneurs that are, you know, in this space of parallel, serial, whatever you want to call it, entrepreneurship, why have they found more success? I know that's a general gen generalized statement, but you see it more often than not. No, I would say that there, there, there aren't that many examples. I mean, there's a handful of examples where it has worked. And the reason it's been hard to do is that the, you, you, First of all, I have to have, you know, ideally years and years of experience and credibility to then be able to do this. And you still have to want to work hard. Right. That limits the pool. When I, if, if I went back and we did a flashback to the internet conference in 1998 or 1999 that I was at on the circuit, most of the people are retired. You know, mm -hmm. all those CEOs of Yahoo and those places, they're, they're, they're not necessarily in the game anymore. They're all gone. Uh, and so it, it's, as I said earlier, I think it's a hard, my job's a hard thing to do if you're 28. Um, but you got to still keep working. You know, it's interesting. We talk, so we talk about all the different sort of successes that you've had. Um, but you mentioned you start all these companies every year. I'm guessing a lot of them do end up failing or, or shutting down. And I think it's, you know, knowing when to quit or knowing when to pivot or switch gears is just as important as anything. And so we talk about, you talk about your approach to founding them, but in terms of that initial kind of phase of testing out the market, seeing how people react to it, um, when, 
you know, when is usually for you like the right time to know, Hey, is this worth going after or not? Because, mm-hmm. you know, typically when entrepreneurs start a business, it's like their baby, right? It's their vision. It's their baby. But yeah. you having like all these different visions and all these different babies, I don't know how attached you are to the, to the initial idea and hypothesis, or if you're pretty, you know, kind of neutral about it. Um, and like just knowing when to quit, you know? Yeah. So a couple of points. One, I've, I've had a couple not work, but I haven't had that many not work. Um, yeah, but there'll be more now because it takes a few years to not work. And so a couple of years ago, I was starting fewer of them. So uh, there'll be probably more in the future. But in general, it's, it's really going pretty well. Um, one advantage in having multiple companies that you founded is that it makes you more objective about them. To your point, when you're the CEO, you're, you, you need to have tunnel vision. You need to only be thinking about what you're doing. As a result, it's hard to admit that your, your baby's ugly and it's not working. It's easier for me. I'm less emotionally involved in any one company. And so I can come to you and say, look, I just don't think this is working, you know, and try and convince you that we're there uh, and that we need to sell. I mean, I had a company called WorkFrame that was using software to manage uh, assets, uh, your, like your furniture and real estate assets for companies. And we raised probably $8 million over four or five years. But it just didn't really take off. And so we decided it wasn't working and the team agreed and we sold it for like $3 million. So we took, most people took a big loss uh, and it was the right thing to do. And because one of the things I, the CEOs tend to actually stay too long, you know, they just don't want to give up. And we all have friends who've been working on some company that's not really working and they've put six years into it and you can't do that. Your, your time is too valuable. Uh, so I, I encourage them to say, look, if it's not working, let's close it down. You'll move on. You'll do something else. Uh, you'll get another swing at it. Mm-hmm. No big deal. These, these things happen. Right. But uh, if, if, it's a, if, it's, if the market's changed or it's not a good idea, we, we shouldn't do it. Speaking of the like ideation process when it comes to coming up with like sort of startup ideas, um, it, you, know, you know, they say like ideas are a dime a dozen. I don't know if good ideas are a dime a dozen, but mm-hmm. like ideas are a dime a dozen. Yeah. Um, what is, I mean, and, and to come up with creative ideas, you have to be pretty, you know, out there just like getting inspired by things and just learning and learning and learning. I see you have a lot of books behind you there. I'm guessing you're a pretty avid reader, but what do you typically do to, to just stay in the loop, stay inspired, see, see what's happening to be able to come up with, you know, constantly come up with new good ideas that are going to be successful businesses. Yeah. So it's, it's reading a lot, but it's also just talking to people and, you know, diving in, like if I'm interviewing you and you're coming from some company, I just want to hear about what are the challenges, what's happening. You know, people within their industry know the challenges. Like when you're building a business, even doing a podcast, whatever vendors you deal with, sometimes you'll tell me, God, it's incredible. I cannot find anyone to provide this. You know, a good, I'm looking at your microphone, but can't find a good microphone or they're crazy expensive. And so then sometimes I'm like, wow, that's interesting. There's so many people doing this. Maybe there's a market for a better microphone or a cheaper microphone, uh, or, or something. And that's where you come up with things. I mean, I'll give you a good example. We, we've started a couple of healthcare companies and realized that even though one was for maternal care and one was for sleep, we had to build the same website. That you had to book appointments with someone. There was a lot of content. It had to be HIPAA compliant. And so we're like, wait a second. Why isn't there a Shopify for healthcare companies? And it turns out there wasn't really. And so it's called Capable Health. And we have 20 clients using it right now. Uh, and so we just realized by keeping our eyes open that, that that was needed out there. It was a problem. 
everything has to solve a problem out there. Things that are hard to get, things that are expensive. Uh, I'm also thinking of fundamental trends. You know, when we have an offsite, I put up 2032. That's 10 years from now. Anything you believe, I want to know, do you believe this will be true in 2032? Because it takes 10 years to build a big company. So what do I believe in 10 years from now? Robotics. That's why I have a dedicated robotics person. Because those problems of you know higher labor costs and uh, shortage of people are not going away. You know, I started an outsourcing company because finding engineers is a problem that's not going away. I have a person focused on material science because the breakthroughs in material science and nanotechnology are fascinating going to grow. And then healthcare is slightly different. It's going to grow, but in the United States, it's such a terrible system. I mean, mm-hmm. your knee surgery is like $40,000, but yet in France, it's $10,000 and it works just as well. So I can do better. At the end of the day, you've got to figure out something you can do better. So the idea on this new is you're always thinking of problems and how we solve them and then interviewing a lot of people. So so when you do have these ideas, is your immediate reaction once you sort of ponder it a little bit and decide, yeah, maybe we should start a company around this or, or test it out, is to build it? Or do you also like invest in other companies that you come across that are like, wow, you know, that's impressive. They're actually doing exactly what I thought. <clears throat> is an issue instead of going through this whole thing of building it, I might just invest in this company because I believe the founder has what it takes to, to make it successful. Absolutely. So my first instinct is to build it, but, uh, and that, and often we do now process wise, these deep dives. So someone will spend a month looking at fertility. And so sometimes after interviewing a lot of people and seeing all the challenges and finding women and men who've been dealing with some aspect of uh, fertility, we think, oh, we've got an idea. And then sometimes we either don't have idea or run across a company or like, oh my God, what a team, what a good idea. Let's invest in there. So we start, I said about eight companies a year or nine, and we probably invest in 15 companies a year that we run across. Now we we never want to be have two things that are competitive with each other. So we've got to choose either we're investing or we're starting in a vertical. Mm-hmm. What is your personal purpose? So um, one of the things that I drive my life on is just what do I enjoy doing and what can I do that has an impact? And so for me, those happen to coincide that creating and building businesses, both for-profit and non-for-profit, are where I enjoy things. Like other people want to be listening to opera all day or playing golf. You know, I just don't enjoy that as much. What I, I don't even, I'm not even working. I mean, this is what I do for fun. Uh, I do more and more on the nonprofit side. I, we ha- I have a social impact uh, um, general partner. So because we don't have outside money in our firm, we can actually make investments that are social impact driven, that maybe have a slightly lower return, but we think make the world a better place. Uh, that's a big advantage we have. So we have a whole practice doing that. Over time, I will do even more in that space. Um, but I, you know, look, I, there's hardly anything that makes me feel better than realizing I was at the Zola board meeting today. We have 250 people, hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of very happy brides and grooms and brides and brides that for the most beautiful day of their life had a great experience. We've created jobs. Uh, we've created a great product. I feel good about that. Yeah. You, you mentioned social social entrepreneurship. or um, And also I, I, I saw that or I read that you are very philanthropic. You're very involved in like different organizations. I'm curious as someone who is doing that, but also, you know, is very much, you know, uh, maybe for lack of a better word, a capitalist when it comes to like building businesses, 
Um, how much, you know, I guess with some of these issues that maybe you're passionate about, um, how, have you seen that private companies are making more of an impact trying to solve those issues in general, or generally speaking here, than the, the kind of the, you know, nonprofits or the public side? You know, it just depends on the issue. So there are, um, you know, we were investing in a company that's going to provide childcare for blue collar workers, emergency childcare within blue collar workers at like a UPS or FedEx. And that's something that's really needed. It's, but it's going to be a for-profit company. And I think that's a good solution because there's money coming in and incentives to make that work. If you said I was on the board of human rights watch for 12 years, you know, is there anyone who's going to pay money in the for-profit sector to fight, to make sure that in Uganda or in the Caribbean that they, uh, you can't just discriminate against gay people. No, you know, there's no for-profit model there. And so it has to be a nonprofit, uh, nonprofit model. You know, I'm very involved in the, in the psychedelic industry. And so for the first several years, the only money out there was nonprofit research. I helped fund the Yale center for psychedelic research, uh, to get to prove that there was actually a there there. And what's interesting in that industry now is now because that has been established and nonprofit money played an extraordinary role for the last 15 years, for-profit money, including my own, I've started a for-profit company now as well, um, will fund this and take it to the next level and turn it into a $10 billion industry that will help so many people in mental health. And so that's a good example of there was a role for nonprofit and then there's a role for for-profit. Mm-hmm. And both are extremely important. You know, with all these different businesses and nonprofits and organizations you're involved in, is there like one singular issue or thing that you are very, very, very passionate about that like long term, all these things sort of coming together, converging into one thing that you hope to accomplish? Or is it just kind of a bunch of different issues and things that you're passionate about and interested in and trying to just like solve them separately? If that makes sense. Yeah, I, no, I wouldn't unite them under one uh, umbrella. You know, our world is incredibly complicated. And so there's so many different things that solve a problem, you know, somewhere. I, I, we started a company in meth addiction, a huge problem. No one's tackling it. We're getting very good results. Um, that's just a very different problem than all the things that are happening in, the, in climate change. Uh, both are valuable. Both are interesting. Um, you know, databases can be used now to do things that could never have been done before and are very important part of the ecosystem. They're just, I, you can't unite these all under one, one umbrella. You know, we have a big, complicated role. That I happen to be intellectually interested in a lot of different things, which is why this, this business, what I do, it, it suits me because I love tackling different topics and I try and bring things across, but that's not for everyone. What advice would you give to high school students and college students who are similar, similar to you that, you know, have leadership capabilities, have, you know, you know, have this visionary mind and, you know, are confused. Perhaps they don't know what they want to do, but what's your advice to them? Yeah. I mean, and it's, look, it's in your lifetime, you got to try and figure out what you like to do because there is nothing more important than feeling like I go to work every day and I like what I'm doing. And there are people who are, you know, lawyers and computer programmers and actuaries and salespeople uh, who like what they're doing, but they can't like the other person's job. So 
you just got to figure out, are you the programmer who likes tackling a very difficult problem, pretty solitary, you know, all day, or are you the salesperson who wants to be in front of everyone? And those are two easy ones to predict. And it's hard for people to figure out what's right for them, but they got to be doing what uh, they're, they like and what they like is what they're going to be good at long term. Right. Everyone likes success. Uh, and so they, they've got to find that. And, you know, when I, when I work with, I talk to a lot of younger people. I have three kids between 22 and 27, they're friends. I try and figure that out and help them figure that out. But sometimes, you know, we all have friends who don't figure that out until they're 35 or 40. Would the high school Kevin be surprised at the level of success that current Kevin has achieved? Not as much as you. I mean, I, I definitely had big expectations. It wasn't specifically this. I thought I was going to be, I thought I'd be running a big company by now. That was my dream at the time. Like the CEO of Pepsi type of thing? Yeah. 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 Is there, is there, uh, are there any like CEOs now or founders that you really look at and be like, wow, um, they're, they're like a different breed? So look, I've always thought that Jeff Bezos is the most extraordinary, you know, CEO out there. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who saw it from day one, how big it was going to be, had a long-term vision, expanded it, hired great people. Uh, I mean, so I think it's, I mean, I, I know him a little bit, but not that well, but remarkable what he has done. Uh, remarkable. So yeah. I think that's very impressive. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that also, the management team at, at uh, Amazon, when he left, uh, all his director, on average, they'd been there like 14 years. So even though he's, you know, I'm sure demanding to work for a bunch of people like to stay there for a long, long, long time. Uh, far fewer companies have Amazon CEOs than you would think, given that it employs more people than anyone else and is in a hundred different industries. They keep their good people. They execute well. I mean, nothing's perfect, but God, they've done a great job in many ways. Yeah, no question about that. Kevin, I feel like we could sit here and just chat all day. There's so much to unpack <laughs> here, but you know, we can't thank you enough just for being here and just sharing your wisdom and all these, you know, experiences you've had and um, you know, excited to see where the where the companies you're starting today go and um I'm sure, you know, you're going to have no shortage of success there. So, appreciate your time and um, you know, hope to hope to keep in touch. Great. Well, good catching up with you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Thank talk you. to you soon. Have a good yep. one.